Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 493 of the podcast. It's November 29th, 2023. My guests today are Gene Kim and Steve Spear. We're going to be talking about their new book, Wiring the Winning Organization. So you can learn more. You can find links to their book and their websites and more. Look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash audio 493. There's so much we could talk about related to the book and, and their expertise and applications of uh, the ideas in their book. Um, I think at, at the end, we all feel like we, we just barely scratched the surface. Uh, we'd like to invite you, the listener, to uh, submit questions. I, I think Gene, Steve, and I are looking to do a follow-up episode in early 2024. You can email me, mark at leanblog.org, if you have questions for that discussion uh, based on the episode. Uh, get their book and, and, and see what questions you have. Um, always good to talk to them and look forward to doing it again. So uh, again, mark at leanblog.org. You can send me any feedback or ideas you have about the podcast there. And again, the episode page is leanblog.org slash 493. Well, hi, welcome back to uh, Lean Blog Interviews. I'm Mark Graven. Very excited. We're joined today. We have two guests here together, uh, Gene Kim and Steve Spear, co-authors of the new book, Wiring the Winning Organization, Liberating Our Collective Greatness Through Slowification, Simplification, and Amplification. And I got all through that in the first take. So uh, <laughs> congratulations uh, on the book. Before I tell you a little bit more about Gene and Steve, yeah, well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you here. So great to be here. Yeah, Mark, it's good to be here. Yeah. I thought it was going to be like three tries. I was going to have to... <laughs> to get through uh, the title, Wiring the Winning Organization. Um, joining us uh, here uh, for the first time, Gene Kim. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, researcher. He's been studying high-performing tech companies since 1999. He was founder and CTO of Tripwire for 13 years. He's the author of six books, including The Unicorn Project, I'm co-author of the Shingo Publication Award-winning Accelerate and, and others. He has been the founder and organizer of DevOps Enterprise Summit, which Gene, I saw an email earlier and I didn't update the intro. This event has a oh, new no, name. No, no, it's all tell, good. It's all good. Tell, tell us about the new name for the event. Um, oh, it's the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit. And I think the observation is that, uh, you know, kind of the aperture of the conference has kind of moved on between just dev versus ops to, you know, the stuff in between dev and QA and also stuff afterwards, operations and stuff before it, you know, business <laughs> and so forth. So, uh, you know, really it's been a conference about experience reports of technology leaders transforming their organizations, uh, uh, often with their business counterparts. So it was uh, time <laughs> we kind of made so many comments over the years saying, uh, you know, this is not the way I talk about the conference to other people. You know, uh, it's really about a leadership conference. So anyway, that was a long time coming and uh, finally, uh, uh, finally made the change. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes and hope people uh, check that out. Gene's joining us uh, from Oregon. And we're uh, also joined coming to us from Massachusetts, Steve Spear. Uh, Steve, you, you, this is your sixth time, I believe, on the podcast. <laughs> You're the guy who returns my calls, Mark. What can I do? <laughs> no, you you return mine, and uh, I, I, it's more than a hundred episodes ago. We look at the gap between episodes. That's that's on me. That's 
my fault, but I'll put links to the previous episodes. Always great to talk to Steve. Uh, he is a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's a senior fellow at the uh, at IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He's the author of uh, very influential publications like the book, The High Velocity Edge, HBR articles, uh, including Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System and Fixing Healthcare from the Inside, comma, today. Uh, he is also founder of uh, c to solve a business process software company. He has a doctorate from Harvard, master's degrees in mechanical engineering and management from MIT, and a bachelor's degree in economics from Princeton. Um, so, Steve, unlike Saturday Night Live, I, I don't send a special jacket to the five-time <laughs> club members. Um, We'll figure we'll figure out something to to help um, signify that. Other than a, a hearty thank you and welcome back, Mark. I'm highly motivated by a trivial swag. So if you come up with a jacket, t-shirt, even a scarf, I'm good. <laughs> actually, Mark and I were brainstorming about the 150 pound trophy that's actually heading your way. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Not, nothing uh, spouses and families love more than uh, having that 150 pound trophy put central, like in the living room or the kitchen. It is like anyway. It can I'm be behind, I'm waiting for it. It can be blurred behind you in the background of every Zoom meeting and podcast you ever <laughs> It'll be hard to miss. Um, before we talk about the book, um, uh, Gene, I, I want to throw this at you first. I've sort of, you know, come to ask people as a, you know, introductory question. You know, tell us your origin story, whether that was I don't know, lean or agile or however you frame it. But to like to to this whole world of kind of interconnected methodologies, how and where and when and why did you get started? Yeah, for sure. In fact, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, Mark and I have a lot of friends in common in the technology community. And uh, so my journey started back around 1999 with this observation that there were uh, certain organizations that simultaneously had the best project due date performance and development, uh, the best operations, uh, uh, reliability and stability, they had the best posture security and compliance. And so the natural question is, you know, how, what are they doing differently that results in those uh, amazing outcomes? And in that journey, I remember reading uh, the 1999 article, Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System, and just was dazzled by the clarity uh, of it. Um, and, you know, this journey has taken me through sort of ITIL through the kind of an operations framework, you know, that led me to the DevOps community. And, um yeah, what I found so exciting uh, was uh, meeting Steve at uh, an executive education course at MIT in 2014, and uh, that was uh, it just changed uh, my worldview, and it made me realize there was so much uh, that was uh, that I didn't see, and uh, you know, hopefully we integrated some of that into the DevOps handbook. But uh, it's been so rewarding working with Steve over the past you know, three plus years. I really trying to answer this question of uh, what is in common between DevOps, Agile the Toyota production system, lean, safety culture, and so much more. And, you know, I think the, uh, a phrase that uh, Steve uttered that just forever I'll, I'll carry around is, you know, they're all incomplete of a, a far greater whole. And so that's what really what we tried to put into uh, wearing the winning organization. Hmm. Yeah. And, and real real quick for all the, the different terms there, not everybody listening has that software or tech background. And I don't even know. So I'm going to ask you just yeah. for myself, what, what is DevOps in a nutshell? Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, I would say the kind of the pre-wearing the winning organization, I would say it is a set of um, uh, architectural practices, technical practices, and cultural norms that allow organizations to do tens or hundreds of – or maybe even hundreds of thousands of deployments per day like at Amazon, right, while preserving world-class reliability and stability. And you know, I think the way they do that, which is uh, 
you know, this is in a world where most organizations, you know, 10 years ago were doing maybe one release a year and it was, you know, often, you know, a terrible <laughs> resulting in terrible outcomes. Think healthcare.gov. Uh, that was just uh, uh, unthinkable, irresponsible, uh, maybe even immoral. <laughs> and yet, you know, if you take a look at uh, the techniques they were using, I think that you would recognize so much of it uh, in the Toyota production system, the you know small batch sizes, single piece flow, um, you know linearized processes as you go from development to QA to operations, uh, and information security baked in uh, at every step. Uh, how am I doing, uh, Mark and Steve? Yeah, right on. I, that sounds good to me. I, I I don't know. Like I said, I don't know to to grade your answers, so. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for. Uh, you know, we uh, and we we might be able to dive back into that as we talk about different concepts from the book, if if that helps illustrate things. Yeah. Um, Steve, I you know since you haven't, I, I think been on here since episode three eighty six. I don't know if I was asking the origin story question. I think I feel like I've I've somewhere heard you talk about this, but let me frame. Let me ask a question about your TPS origin story. So how does how does Steve Spear go from bachelor's degree in economics? to engineering and, and Toyota study? Like there, yeah. what, what tipped you in that direction? Yeah, no, thank you. It's a, I appreciate the question. So I'm of the generation, which is sort of a post cold war that, um, you know, I got out of college in, uh, you know, the, the, the intense rivalry of the, the 50s, 60s, even early seventies between the U S and the Soviets and their, their uh, respective domains. It was clear there was a winner and a loser in that. Um, but there wasn't, um, there was an opportunity for a uh, uh, relaxation because while there was no longer this sort of a uh, military political threat, there was this industrial threat. Um, Japanese companies were, uh, um, you know, on the rise and posing real existential threat to American manufacturers, some of which, uh, you know, faced their demise, you know, U.S. steel, Bethlehem steel, RCA. I mean, General Motors still struggles around, but, you know, not at, nearly at the pinnacle of what they were. And so, uh, you know, you and I are of that generation where we were like, what the hell is going on in Japan, which is uh, so fabulous in terms of their ability to generate and deliver value into society, which is wildly appreciated, um, whereas uh, others can't. And, uh, you know, we, we were fortunate that we were not the first wave of that question, because the first wave of that question had a sort of a Cold War answer, because the Cold War was sort of a nation state contest. And so the first wave of answer to that question in the early 80s was there must be something nation state in, in nature. It's uh, Japanese versus American culture, which wasn't actually the case, or something about the uh, the great wisdom of the Japanese uh, um, governmental bureaucracy, which was not the case. Theirs is equally poor. Um, and, and, you know, fortunately, we, we arrived with the second wave where the studies were no longer at the nation state level, but at the corporation, the enterprise level. And um, what was becoming more and more obvious was that the huge distinction wasn't Japan versus the United States because there were perfectly crummy organizations within Japan and some great ones in the US. It was at the level of the factory or the studio, whatever the organizing, generating productive unit uh, was. And um, you know, we had the good fortune of being at MIT when folks like Lester Thoreau were around kind of encouraging us to think this way. The Leaders for Manufacturing program was being gestated across the, uh, the business school and the management school. And I, I got caught up in that wave of what is going on there. Um, and I had the good fortune, I mean, really just, you know, the blessing that um, Kent Bowen, who is a professor at MIT in material science, um, we started a conversation, started a relationship, and he took me on as a doctoral student. And uh, there it was, 
the mid nineties where I end up as a, a student of Kent's and we're 10 years into lean manufacturing and uh, Toyota is arguably one of the most studied organizations ever. And there's no second Toyota. And by good fortune, I had this chance to um, do a karate kid immersion inside a Toyota organization to learn firsthand what it was they did. And, and this was the huge freaking epiphany. I'm going to connect it right back to what uh, Gene was working on at the time is um, I went in like a lot of people thinking, oh, man, they must have some production control algorithm or, or something like that. It was in the math, it was in the robots. And what I came to appreciate, unfortunately, not as quickly as I wish I had, but what I finally came to appreciate that they created the ultimate learning machine, that, that they had established themselves in the way they organized the work of many, many people in a way that people were seeing and solving problems with a rapidity, a breadth, a depth, which no one else could match. Now, what I want to carry this over to Gene's work is, um, you know, we hit the Sloan School right around the time that MIT was the host for the International Motor Vehicle Program, which... Uh, you know, generated the research to you to show these enormous, dis enormous disparities between the quality, productivity, agility, et cetera, et cetera, that a handful of Toyota factories could achieve versus everyone else. And that was that program that coined the term originally um, uh, lean production that became lean manufacturing, right? Um, Gene was doing on his own the same trying to understand disparities. And if you look at the International Motor Vehicle Program, it was a study of 186 uh, plants and da-da-da-da. And she was on his own doing the same thing across the projects of his type, where first he documented the enormous disparity between what was not good and you know best and worst, but typical and outstanding. And then he started to dig around and dig around and dig around to try and figure out what explained this, uh, this enormous gap between the very best and everyone else. And I think he was arriving at the same conclusion. It, it, it was the learning dynamic that separated the best from the worst. And, and so at some point, um, Gene and I have a common acquaintance of a guy who's just a, a phenomenally good connector, this guy, Tim Taylor. I'm saying his name because everyone on your show probably knows him because everyone's removed by like two degrees of <laughs> separation. He knows everybody or knows someone who does. But he, he made the introduction, said, you guys should start talking. That was 2014 or so. And we've been talking since. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, whether it was uh, someone on, in his family or mine said, would you stop talking and start writing? And so we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that leads into what I wanted to ask you best, uh, next. So we heard some of the origin of, you know, Gene had been reading your work, Steve, and then you met. And um, tell, tell us more than I was going to ask about how how your, your your paths became intertwined here to work on a book together. Because that's yeah. a big commitment there work-wise. Yeah, so I'll just do a short version on this and then kick it over to Gene. But um, Mark, you know, like you, uh, my my roots are in factories, and I'm very comfortable in places where you know before you go in, they say, "Oh, do you have your eye, you know, your eye protection and your your steel tip shoes?" Um, as far as technology, um, you know, I, I use Apple products because they require no skill at all. You know, I, I turn them on and everything happens. And Gene was coming out of an environment which I understood not at all. I mean, I, that's actually not an exaggeration. Yeah, not at all. And yet when I listened to him talk and he got past a description of the technology being used and he started talking about the organizing principles, that's a little foreshadowing of our layers, Gene, right? Um, but when he started talking about the organizing and the management principles, it was like, holy crap, he's talking exactly the same ideas 
that I was picking up, not picking up, but being uh, immersed in at, at, at Toyota and immersed in, in great places like Alcoa. And, and that, that just fueled the conversation because we're talking exactly the same language about two completely, what I thought were two completely different things. But over to Gene. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I'll just characterize the working relationship with uh, Steve as, you know, the most intellectually challenging but rewarding relationship I've uh, uh, had uh, ever. And, you know, just to maybe kind of uh, get concrete, I mean, you know, here's some of the kind of epiphanies that have come up over the last couple of years. You know, so, uh, you know, I think so much has been written about the independence of action that's created within the Toyota production system. The notion that, you know, they've, you know, really, it, we're, it, somehow we're able to lower the cost of change to be able to do so much experiments um, and uh, be able to do, be so resilient, you know, uh, uh, during production. Um, and so, you know, that is actually something that you see in great, you um, uh, engineering organizations where they're able to do so much more uh, with uh, with such a dramatically lower cost of change. So, you know, we could certainly uh, derive some of the similarities there. But uh, yeah, another sort of key aha moment is that there's another independence of action that happens on a, on a total orthogonal axis. So uh, we're talking about independence of action within sequential processes. There's actually a whole other category where we can create independence of actions for parallel processes. And so... Um, you know, that's so much based on the work of uh, Dr. Um, Carlos Baldwin and Dr. Kim Clark um, around their study of the System 360 project at IBM. So that's a modest $5 billion project. So that's $20 billion U.S. in current dollars uh, that, you know, uh, created the basis of, uh, you know, dominance in the computer industry. And it turns out that's exactly uh, what we saw happen at uh, in Amazon in the uh, 2000s. And, you know, to go when so Amazon had 2,000 engineers um, they were able to do maybe hundreds of deployments per day in the early days of their e-commerce property, but that sort of ground to a halt as they kept on adding product categories to the point where they're only doing tens of deployments, uh, software deployments per year. And so that's what led to the famous uh, creation of two pizza teams, the Jeff Bezos memo, saying you know, we want teams no larger than, than can be fed by two pizzas, able to work independently of each other with no communication coordination as opposed to spending all the time communicating, coordinating. Uh, and so in the same way that independence of action creates, you know, this dazzling amount of uh, um, uh, ability to innovate and to, to adapt, you know, we can do that similarly in parallel systems like in software. Uh, Steve, how yeah. am I doing? It's fantastic. And Mark, if, if you'll indulge me here, I want to pick up on something Gene was saying is that um, the opportunity to embed inside Toyota was a, uh, a once in a lifetime experience for me. And what I came to appreciate was um, they were designing systems and, and you and I know this going through business school, right? That uh, the influence is, Oh, you're supposed to think about the efficiency of the flows of materials through machines. And, and what I came to appreciate in, in this immersion is that they were designing the material and the machines and their flows around the human mind that, that, is there clarity of purpose? Is there clarity of, of approach? And is there clarity of error so that the system can be um, rapidly uh, self-correcting? And, and it, it was such a mind-boggling thing to realize that this is what was going on. This It, it was designing around the human mind and the potential of the human mind to uh, be uh, uh, creative and have ingenuity and uh recognize problems that hadn't been recognized and generate solutions that previously didn't exist. And now I'm going to tie this back to Gene's comment about the um, Amazon two pizza thing. So uh, it's rare 
that you encounter an organization which says, oh, what we're going to do is um, gain our competitive advantage by creating conditions in which people's brains can be put to the best possible use. So Toyota, and in fact, if you go back through Taiichi Ono's uh, seminal book from 1988 in English, 1978 in, in Japanese, and you read it with an eye towards what he's really saying, he's not talking about manufacturing processes. He's talking about um, manufacturing conditions that allow people to uh, make um, intellectual and creative contributions. So that carried over to Toyota. Um, you know, I had a 20-year relationship with Paul O'Neill, who was a CEO at Alcoa and went through just some phenomenal uh, transformation there. And um, when you, you know, I had the advantage of being mentored and uh, tutored by Paul O'Neill. And you know, one of the things he said, look, it, it was simple, which is, if you think about the complexity of the processes and the sprawl of the organization, he said, no, my competitors, when someone showed up every day, they, they said to the body, put your lunchbox, your coat, and your brain in the locker and bring your brawn out onto the shop floor. And Paul O'Neill said, all I had to do was say to the bodies, thank you for bringing 30,000 brains into my enterprise because now I outnumber the bad guy, right? You know, the competitors. And you take that a step further, and this is the back to the two pizza thing. You know, um, now Amazon, I think the bulk of its profits come from its cloud services. And as Gene was talking about, the cloud services emerged not because someone deliberately designed cloud services. They're trying to solve for the problem of the complexity of their business process software. Um, and there was a redesign. But here, here's the sequence is that some might think it's like, oh, we're going to design this business process software and then allow us to create two pizza teams, you know, small coherent teams. But the way I understand it from Gene is first they set up the rule that it, the thing we're going to design, we're going to design the thing so that we can work on it two pizza teams at a time. And what once they set that criteria, then it came up with this whole idea of modularity and APIs and this thing and that thing. And, and what's really quite remarkable is if you follow that chronology, that they realized that their um, exit velocity out of the problem situation they were in was around liberating human intellectual uh, horsepower, Liber you know, uh, allow the ingenuity to be focused in a, in a, in a highly productive way. And then they landed on the modularity. And, and again, like I said, that's a very, very rare thing. Toyota, um, Amazon, Alcoa, I don't know. That's three out of uh, naval reactors for sure. You know, uh, Admiral Rickover, I talk about that in my first book. Um, he also designed processes to allow people to be creative. But mm -hmm. man, Mark, it, it's rare. And uh, they don't teach it in business school, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so the wiring, you know, so the title of the book, again, uh, wiring the winning organization, that wiring seems to include systems, high level design decisions that aren't, you know, this is not the top down um, genius at the top making every decision for everybody. The subtitle mm -hmm. talks about you, you use the word liberating, Steve, liberating our collective greatness. And then I think we'll have time to get to you know, the how, like there, there, there's, it's a rich title and subtitle. Like we can talk for an hour, just unpacking the title, but I wanted to ask one follow-up question though, about wiring. And, and I, I know this has happened a lot of people studying, whether it was Toyota or some health system that people thought was maybe going to be the Toyota of healthcare. Uh, Gene, there's a chance to ask you if this happens with other tech companies, but people get enamored with one piece and like, Oh, that's the magic beans. So my question is, how many people copied two pizza teams and failed spectacularly? 
because they didn't understand the rest of the wiring. Yeah. Um, how about this as a sequence? Gene, you can answer Mark's very particular question about how many failed. I'll just take a guess that most because so many people try to copy Toyota and there's no imitators, no good imitators. And then what Gene, what I was thinking is I explained the concept of uh, the wiring and you explained the concepts of danger and winning zone. So actually, why don't you take it all? I'll just riff off of you. Uh, (laughs) Maybe let's set the stage for the foundational concepts in the book that I think that we find so rewarding. So so I'll take a, I'll take a stab mark that, uh, those who copied the two pizza teams actually went out and bought a lot of pizza and didn't understand why the hell they were buying pizza. And, 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 and if you were the dude who owned the pizza store down the block, you had like six months of just like profits you couldn't imagine. And then you wonder what the hell happened to the pizza. And that's because they, uh, they said, Oh no, it's not pizza. It's falafel or whatever, you know? So, um, you know, it's anyway, but anyway, so the, uh, the concept of wiring, I'll tell you where it comes from is that in the book, we talk about, um, you know, a big focus. The book is focused around the individual and their ability to be creative in a, in a productive, contributory fashion. And we say, you know, most organizations think about um, where people focus their ingenuity. And we say there are three layers. The first layer is the object in front of them. And look, you know, trained as an engineer, you, you know, if you're a mechanical engineer, you learn to think about the design, the structure of a gear. If you're a, a geneticist, you think about the design and structure of DNA, whatever it is, you think about the object in front of you. And, you know, I guess the IT people, of, you know, which uh, Gene is representing, they think about code or something or whatever they do on their little keyboards all day. Um, and then there's a second level where you have to focus not on the object, but the instrumentation through which you act on that object, right? So for a mechanical engineer, it might be a lathe or some other kind of uh, machinery. For uh, a geneticist, it might be the CRISPR technology. But it's the instrumentation through which you act on that thing. But then there's a third layer, and that's the argument we make. And this is where uh, folks like Toyota really sweat it. It's um, the processes that allow the individual connect to the larger whole in a way that um, the individual efforts actually harmonize together smoothly towards uh, some collective creative action towards common purpose. And the reason we use the term circuitry to describe processes, procedures, routines, the things that join us together, it's not metaphorical. So you start thinking about what a, a real a technical circuit does, a you know, technical versus social circuit. The technical circuit takes something which is in high concentration in one location and allows it to flow ideally smoothly, efficiently, without impedance, viscosity, whatever, allows it to flow where it's actually needed. So an electrical circuit takes charge from here to here. Plumbing takes uh, pressurized gases and fluids and whatnot, allows them to go from here to here. Sometimes because they're needed here, sometimes they have to meet in the middle and to react, whatever else it is. You start thinking about an enterprise. We form up enterprises. Why? Because there are big, huge, hairy problems that we can't solve individually. We have to put a lot of minds on it. And why do we have processes then? It's allow the thing that you know to flow to me because I actually need that information or the thing Gene knows and the thing you know to come together and have a, a very positive reaction. And so we were really deliberate and non-metaphorical in saying there's all these processes which are meant to join people into this uh, collaborative, creative uh, joint effort. And if they're well designed, the brain power of the people who are in the circuit can um, harmonize and synthesize in a beautiful fashion. But if that circuitry is ill designed, then so much uh, ingenuity and effort is just squandered, just trying to figure out 
where do I fit in? What do I do? Who do I depend on? Who depends on me? What do they da, 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 da. And, and, and that's that's the ultimate finite resource, right? And sorry for the digression. I once did this thing uh, with a group. It turns out that um, let's say the average person burns 2,000 calories a day. And I, I'm doing the math off the top of my head. And some huge portion of that is consumed by the brain. I think it's like a thousand calories of the 2,000 calories is just your brain just functioning. It sounds like a lot until you figure out that a slice of bread um, is 100 calories. All right. So then basically, you, 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 you got this very, and you start thinking about your, your strictly limited resource. I'm sorry I forgot this example because I'd have a nice little uh, pantomime here. But like, pretend this is a t- slice of toast. That's your resources for an hour of brain power. And so the question is, what are you going? How are you going to invest that slice of toast? And in most organizations, it's like you know, and this would be more a scrap of paper. Anyway, just imagine I'm throwing little crumbs away. You know, you tear this off. It's like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Oh, you tear this off. You know, uh, who am I supposed to work with? Oh, you tear this off. What resources do I need? You tear this off. You know, where do I get those resources? Oh, you tear this off. Oh, how do I clean up this area to actually do my work? And then when you do all that tearing off because you've burned your brain power just figuring out what to do, what you're left with is like this tiny little scrap. Yeah. And then that's that that that's your brain budget for the hour. Is that. Now on the other hand, you've got that circuitry wired right. You know, you got this. And 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 if you've got this as your brain budget versus this little thing, you're going to win every day. And so anyway, um circuitry- Steve, can you tell us a little bit about the danger zone versus the winning zone? Yeah. So um, what we say is, you know, the folks who, um, you know, give this is the uh, the nutritional budget for the brains in their organization to actually do useful stuff. The reason um, there's so little energy left to solve hard problems is because they put themselves in what we call the danger zone. And the danger zone is um, characterized. Again, you know, the reason we form up in the first place is that we're, we're trying to solve problems together. We can't solve individually. So you ask the question, well, you know, um, what makes it hard to solve a problem? Well, you know, give me a really hard problem. One when we've got a lot of factors and a lot of intertwining of forces and this and that. And when I look at that thing, I can't even characterize the thing and, and, and forget about um, making any guess about, you know, pulling what lever causes what outcome. Um, think about, uh, you know, um, Bert in in uh, Mary Poppins with that whole contraption of the, the the horns and the toots and the drums and this thing and that thing, like that. So that's one. What else? Um, well, if you're going to ask me to solve a problem, give me very little time. So I, I got no time to really think it through. I, I just have to go whatever muscle memory, habit, routine, bias, apply that onto the problem because I, I can't. No time to be creative. I raise the stakes of the situation. So my heart is pounding. I know if I get the wrong answer, poof. Uh, don't give me any control over the situation. So. I, I I don't I, I don't even have access to the levers. I just have to watch the thing and guess, and then don't give me any iteration because you know we we all know um, learning is an iterative process where hopefully we converge on an answer or a skill. So that's the danger zone, and we say, well, what's characteristic of the winners? And and it, this is kind of the beauty of synthesizing Gene's experiences and perspectives with my own because I have no flipping idea what they do in DevOps. Like you, it's like what is this DevOps thing? You know, I, I was like, what's a computer? Um, I still use mechanical pencils, but but what we both found is that the winners in whatever sector we encountered is that they move um, conditions from the danger zone to the, what we call the winning zone. And the winning zone is the danger zone, but just the opposite. You ask people to solve a problem and you say, hey, 
there's this big, huge, hairy problem, but we're going to give you the piece that you can actually see and understand and characterize. It's tractable. We're going to give you some time so that rather in this sort of fast, impulsive, reactive thinking, you can actually be in a, a, a deliberative, reflective, self-critical, slow thinking state. We're going to create conditions that no matter what you try, it's safer than not. We've reduced the risk. We've reduced the hazard. We've given you some control. So actually, there are not only are there fewer levers, but you actually can grab them or dials and you can turn them. And the last thing is we're going to give you several shots on goal so that you have this chance to learn iteratively. So uh, the danger zone is a horrible place to be if you have to you know, generate new useful information. And the winning zone is where you really want to inhabit. <laughs> so um, and then, you know, linking that to the circuitry is that organizations that are wired to win, they create the processes, the procedures, the routines, et cetera, by which people are regularly moved out of that danger zone into that winning zone where they can engage their brains most productively. Mark, can I riff off of that and maybe answer Please. your question in terms of like uh, yeah. I think one of the things I'm I'm really proud of in the in the book that we wrote is that uh, uh, I think we make it very difficult to just cargo cult. Uh, we don't just copy the vocabulary, we don't just copy the tools, and really work from first principles. And essentially, we assert that there's only whenever you see an organization go from worst to first, <laughs> you know, there's only three mechanisms that work. Uh, the first is to slowify. So whenever we see people doing brilliant work in high consequential, you know, environments where you can't undo that, you, you know, that have you know terrible things go wrong if uh, we screw up. Uh, when you see them perform brilliantly, they have to have invested time in planning and practice. And so we have, yeah, there's 26 case studies in the book, and we have these examples not from just technology, uh, but from uh, you know the medical community, from uh, engineering. And you know, I think a great example is uh, you know the U.S. Navy Top Gun program, right? Uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, U.S. Navy pilots suffered uh, you know unacceptable losses. And uh, as uh, Steve wrote, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the findings of the uh, Alt report was that uh, you know pilots were having to do on-the-job training, right? So what was the answer? High-intensity. Um, uh, training, you know, that uh, under you know uh, very realistic conditions, so that you know they had all the muscle memory uh, needed, you know, when they were actually in combat, and so we were able to tap the work of uh, doctors Daniel Kahneman, um, Amos Tversky, right, and show that you know in organizations something very similar is happening. We want to build a routine so that we can perform brilliantly when it matters the most, That's and right. uh, that means we have to slow fi. Uh, just a little trivia fact. Uh, one of the things that we kind of grappled with is that slowify is a made-up word, uh, but there was no, there's no one English word that actually, you know, says you have to slow down to speed up. There's a lot of adages mm -hmm. that uh, insinuate it, but uh, we felt like it was very important, you know, that um, uh, that we, you know, um, describe this is a short-term investment for long-term gain. Yeah. Yep. There, there, um, there, there, there is that expression: "Go slow to go fast." Yeah. I mean, is is that? The, I mean, we've heard That's that it. attributed to Toyota people. Toyota people say it. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You got to stop uh, sawing to sharpen the saw. Yeah, I think there's all these adages um, mm -hmm. that allude to it, but no exact word. Steve? Yeah, and, and Gene, if I could just uh, butt in a little bit is, uh, Mark, we actually did find a term, and I think it's called bullet time. And it's that experience <laughs> that you see of Neo in the Matrix where he's got <laughs> such a uh, an intense perception of the environment that everything seems to be moving slowly, slow to him. One of your three main <laughs> mechanisms, bullet time is really a lousy word. <laughs> right. And it turns out that um, 
Ahneman and Tversky with this whole notion of thinking fast and slow, and this idea that uh, fast thinking has a time and place, but at other times it's really uh, it'll compromise your performance. So to, to use the term that builds off their idea of thinking fast and slow, slowification was a, I think, a very accurate representation of our indebtedness to their research. Hmm. So I, I want, wanted to ask about well. So for can, can I uh, finish oh. that? Uh, just like this, one of the three. Can I give the other two names just so that yeah. we can? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So slow five is like one dimension. The second dimension is uh, how do we make sure that the problems are actually easier to solve? So take those uh, wildly complex problems that are highly coupled, right? So uh, some of the work of um, um, oh the uh, nuclear reactor safety guy. Um, I have this book on my shelf. The Charles Perot. Perot, Dr. Charles Perot, right? Yeah. You know, uh, we don't want highly coupled problems, right? Because I mean, small little failures cause global catastrophic failures. And so there's really three ways that we can chop up problems. We can make them, uh, instead of large batch problems, we solve them incrementally. Uh, we uh, we can sequentialize uh, and linearize problems like the Toyota production system or like the Amazon example, we modularize it. Right. And all of them have this incredible benefit of enabling independence of action, uh, we uh, contain issues so they can't cause uh, global catastrophic failure. They lower the cost of change, enable innovation. Uh, you know all these dazzling things that uh, people have marveled at uh, at Toyota. And then the third one is uh, around amplification. We got to uh, be able to amplify even weak signals of failure so that they can be acted on decisively to better prevent uh, or detect or correct. And this should summon images of uh, Paul O'Neill, uh, the Alcoa safety culture, and so forth. Um, anyway, so those are uh, I think our goal is really to go from first principles of how you create greatness uh, and not fall into the trap of uh, cargo culting, say, you know, the, um, you know, certain tools in the lean toolkit or in the, uh, to answer your question, you know, in the DevOps space, we very much do the same thing, right? There's a Spotify model of how we organize. There's a, you know, around automated testing that we see the tech giants do. So uh, the two pizza teams. So I, hopefully this will give leaders a, uh, a very firm foundation to reason why organizations yeah. do the things that they do. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask about amplification. Before I do that, though, I, I can't pass up. I have to, this is a time of day where I feel like all I can contribute is pointing out the fact that you talked about the Top Gun program, and you're also talking about Danger Zone. And I've been singing Kenny Loggins, or I've been hearing him <laughs> sing in my head for about 10 minutes. We don't have the rights to use that music, <laughs> so we will keep that out of the real background of the episode. But when you, th you think about the wiring, and, and that seems to include culture. And, and one thing uh, that you write about in the book is you know, the factors that help amplification include leaders encouraging people to speak up, comma, psychological safety. And so I wanted to explore that because, you know, Steve, I think of you and I was, I think of see, solve, share. But I, 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 I always think that like there's, there's a fourth one implied, see, safe to speak up, solve, and share. Yeah, or maybe that's assumed in some organizations and then doesn't get copied into others. But I was wondering, you know, maybe Steve, if you first could talk about some of those those habits or the wiring um, in your experience that that creates the psychological safety, so people do feel safe to get from C to solve with with speaking. Yeah, no, no, Mark, that's great. And uh, just to to link back the uh, the C solve share. Um, you know, that was something I realized around 2005 when I wrote that article, Fixing Healthcare, and it became the skeleton around which I draped the entire book, The High Velocity Edge, and kind of connecting the two works. I think The High Velocity Edge is a book 
Um, in some regards about linearization, one of our simplification techniques, and it's a book a lot about amplification, about, you know, and, and so to unpack, you know, in that book, I make the argument that critical is that you design whatever you're designing so you can see what's wrong with the design. So you design things to see problems and that, that that's supposed to be the trigger that when a problem is seen, it's swarmed so it can be solved, contained first, but then solved. So see, solved, and then what's discovered locally can be shared systemically, spread or shared. Um, the fourth part, um, I worked with a client who they they called they came up with a fourth S, which they call sustain. And what they mean by, by sustain, they just wanted a fourth S, um, is is the leadership role in actively keeping the wheel spinning to to, to maintain that angular momentum. Because the real, just like you pointed out, is that um, the whole notion of raising one's hand to say, yo, this is not working right now. I see the problem and I'm calling it out. That's not a natural act. Uh, It's certainly not a natural act in uh, traditional Japan, which was coming out of samurai culture and the militarism, you know, through the 40s. But the Toyota people said, shoot, the only way we're going to become... not sucky and actually become competent and then world-class was we got to give opportunity to people to call problems out. And um, we're finding as Mark, I'm sure you find is everywhere you work and, and, and Gene too, which is the pivotal moment is when the most senior person is consistently present in the workplace. And they say, what are you working on now? And what is compromising your best effort? And what we're doing is in a place right now where a guy shows up every day and, and people say, oh, you know, what's that senior person doing there? And that, that took weeks of just culturization where it's like, oh, he's here again. Oh, he's here again. Well, I guess it's just normal for him to be there. And then he started asking, what is compromising your ability to do an outstanding job? And people started telling him. And, and then what's the next part that's so critical, Mark, is he responded to it. You know, it's not just like, you know, call it out, but call it out. Ex- two digressions, real quick on this. We had a doctoral student who wrote a uh, wrote his uh, dissertation. Compare two plans, both had andon cords, and in one, no one ever pulled the andon cord, and the other one it was being pulled every forty minutes by every individual. And uh, the thing was, the place that no one pulled the andon cord, they should because they sucked. I mean, they were terrible quality productivity mm-hmm. problems there all the time. So he goes in there um, and says. Uh, why don't you ever pull this cord? And they said, oh, no, no, no. Well, you know, one guy says, well, you know, I, I was pulling it because I, you know, I didn't have materials. I didn't have instructions. I didn't know how to do my work. I pulled the cord. No one showed up. And then yeah. his, uh, his colleague says, well, it's a good thing no one showed up because let me tell you what happened when I pulled the cord. <laughs> oh, they showed up all yeah. right. Yeah. Now, in the other, you know, in the, in the factory where um, people pulled the cord all the time, you know, he said, well, how come you're pulling all the time? They said, because we start with the assert- assumption that the environment should be, should be designed that I can succeed right. to do something valuable that I'll be appreciated for. And they've told me if that's our if that's our baseline that is designed for me to succeed in a way that I'm appreciated. They said, if if we violate that, let us know. And what, what, what what's the response? When he pulls the cord that someone shows up and says, oh, Mark, oh, Gene, what's the problem? How can I help? So any, anyway, Mark, you know, to this point, you're absolutely 100% right. This whole, um, it's not even the safety. It's the encouragement and the reward mm-hmm. to raise the hand. And where does that come from? It's from the senior leader who's present, persistently present in, in, yeah. in a very empathetic way.
Yeah. Well, I, I want to give a quick shout out because your, your your story of the factory of why don't they pull the anion cord touches on the two things. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all with uh, Professor Ethan Burris from University of Texas at Austin. He's done a research of why do why do employees choose to not speak up? And it's mm. not if it's not the fear factor, I get yelled at. It's the futility factor of I pulled the cord and nothing happened. So I stopped. Right. Yeah. Why bother? It's a waste of time. It, it seems very universal, sadly. And yeah, in research that those factors keep coming up. Yeah, if I can add one thing, I mean, I think one of the the neatest uh, kind of data points uh, in my journey it was a project called uh, Project Oxygen, and I think before that was called Project Aristotle at Google. And essentially, it was this uh, multi year study that spanned uh, over six hundred teams, and really trying to ask ask you know what makes great teams great. And they found that one that one of the top predictors uh, was really it wasn't sense of mission. It was it was really around to what degree do uh, people on a team feel safe to say what they really think, you know, without fe- feeling like that they're going to get ridiculed, made fun of, uh, marginalized, etc. And you know they found it not just in the engineering teams and software teams, but also even sales teams. And, and so you know, this is actually repeated uh, year over year. And uh, so when we did the state of DevOps research, a cross-population study that you know spanned 60 years, 36,000 respondents, again, I mean, there were like two uh, factors that predicted uh, this amazing performance. Uh, one was uh, that notion of you know uh, organizational safety, right? Um, the ability to say what you really think. And the second was architecture. Right. In other words, how do we wire our organizations that really dictate, you know, how easy is it for us to do our work easily and well? And I just love this quote uh, that we put into the book. Um, Winston Churchill once said, uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And so, too, with the systems that we create, the management systems that we have to work within, we shape it. And then forever after it shapes us. And really, I think the goal of the book is to show what are the most important things to get right. And there are only three <laughs> right? That, and really make the case of uh, why each one of them work that hopefully people will recognize yeah. you know, when they survey the Toyota production system, lean, agile, DevOps. There's all they all have common mechanisms at work. Yeah. High reliability organizations and all the other acronyms and terms and re-engineering and this and that. If you read deeply into them, um, the ones that have substance, they all come back to we either change the conditions in which people are asked to solve problems. That's the slowification. We've actually changed the nature of the problems themselves so they're easier to solve, the simplification, or we've just made it so obvious that you have to draw attention on the small thing versus not, and you respond to it. That's the amplification. And we, we even have a nice Venn diagram in the book, which we repeat a couple of times, which just shows how each of these uh, very popular practices and tools, how they're at least one, but typically some combination of two and even three of slowification, simplification, and amplification. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like in, in any of the study of other organizations, um, you know, there's just the risk of people getting a part of it. You know, uh, they installed the Andon cords and um, didn't um, behave the same way as leaders might at Toyota. Um, you, you write about, you know, you talked here about frequent site visits by leaders. Well, I've been in manufacturing companies where you didn't want the leaders going there because they weren't going to behave the way right. that, you know, I, I think one quick story of like trying to play defense of keeping a vice president of Lean Six Sigma away from a shop floor <laughs> team because it's just the real quick story of like, you know, this is why I think like go to Gemba is not a panacea of uh, we were kind of trying to guide him as we walk down the stairs and out in the factory. Like, okay, we're going to an area, but this one machine's been down for like a day and a half. So it's just, 
bracing him for what he was going to see. Well, he started going on this rant of like, well, we need to send those workers home early because then they'd have incentive to get the machine up and running again. And I'm like, this machine was older than me. At that point, the machine was like over 30 years old. And right. I mean, this guy was just so far out of touch with boom, any of it. We're like, please, please, no, no frequent site visits by him. Right. <laughs> so, so Mark, I'm going to do a Sorry quick to rant here. about that. No, it's fantastic because uh, you get that attitude of, and we, we throw an appendix at the back of the book, which uh, takes shot at a lot of these uh, conventions that it's all about incentives. You know, if we just pay people the right way and measure them the right way and pay them according to the right measurements. And, and we all know that if you go anywhere, shop floor, deck plate, studio, um, laboratory, nursing branch, that, 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 it's not, yeah. that's not how it's working. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, all that, that ridiculous thinking, you know, and then it gets phrased in terms of accountability. We got to hold people <laughs> accountable. Right. Well, you, you, you take your anecdote. It, it's the perfect inversion of, of, of accountability. So that jackass comes in. Ooh, sorry, bleep. That that unelevated executive comes in and he's wanting to hold the workers accountable because he's going to, you know what? Because he's going to send them home early and dock them the pay because they're not doing their work. It's like, but who's responsible for having competent equipment on the floor that they could do their work? Holy cow, it's him, right? And so in the outstanding organizations, the um, the senior leadership is not only present and persistently so, they understand the accountability. And the reason they're present is to find out their accountability to make sure the machine is fixed or the engineering instructions are in place or the material is properly prepared or this thing or that thing. So when the nurse, the doctor, the machinist, the mechanic, the coder, the chef, whatever, when they show up in that moment of actually doing the beautiful thing they have to do to create something of value, the conditions are prepped for them to do that. And, and if they're not prepped, whose fault is that? The machinist? No, she showed up to do her job. It, it, is that jackass senior executive who yeah. didn't prep the situation. Mark, can I add one story just to give a softer example of exactly that? Yeah, please, um, yeah. So one of the stories, uh, pairs of stories that I love in the book is like, why, how could the Apple iPhone in the early stages, it was like 10 software engineers beat Nokia. <laughs> and one of it is that, you know, they had a very small team, but they had everything they needed to quickly iterate and generate new builds and, you know, even uh, figure out how do you make a keyboard that someone could actually type on mm -hmm. when it was even less than the width of a credit card. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting case study to look at what happened at Nokia that had, you know, uh, uh, 24,000 software engineers. And there's this phenomenal book um, called Transforming Nokia by Risto Salasma. And he described how as a the board chairman, uh, actually before he was the board chairman, uh, was uh, as one of the board members, he said it felt like being hit in the sludge, like in, it felt like being hit in the head with a sledgehammer when he learned from the VP of strategy at Nokia that the compile time for the you know uh, operating system that Nokia was relying on to comp compete against Apple was 48 hours hmm. because he said if any engineer took 48 hours to learn whether change worked or would have to be redone, then all of you know this operating system was an illusion. And so that actually – so he said uh, when I got to talk with him, I asked him, you know, it seems like it's such a tactical measure, 48-hour compile times. How did you detect that as a signal that was important to you as a board member? And he said in any organization – you have to ask who is doing the most important work of the organization and then how easy is it for them to do their work? And when he heard 48 hour compile times as a former developer, he said, it's impossible right, for them to actually uh, get, uh, that's just one piece to actually put together 
the hole and see if it actually worked together took two weeks. And he said, there are two uh, reasons why this could be the case. Senior leadership didn't know, and that's a problem. Or senior leadership did know, and that's even a bigger problem. And that (laughs) led to the firing of the CEO. And it's just, I think, to Steve's point, I think what we need in these leaders are are systems thinkers who can see the wiring of the organization and detect these sometimes weak signals of failure and do the right thing so that people can do their work easily and well. Yeah. Um, I apologize that we have kind of a, a hard cutoff here time-wise. Um, we, I would enjoy uh, carrying this on. Um, maybe we can do this again after the first of the year and uh, get questions or input from people who've started reading the book. And, uh, you know, you open invitation, uh, one or the both of you, or heck, I could just open up a Zoom room and it's a fireside <laughs> chat with Gene and Steve, and I'll just get out of your way. But um, it's always a pleasure uh, talking with you both, Gene. I'm glad we could record it here in this venue um, for, I, I, this is, this is the first time, right? I had to go and double check that. Absolutely. Okay. But let's not let it be the last. You're not quite close to Steve's giant trophy level of of guest appearances. But again, today we've been joined here uh, by Gene, Kim, and Steve Spear, co-authors of the new book, Wiring the Winning Organization, Liberating Our Collective Greatness Through Slowification, Simplification, and Amplification. Two for two on that. So thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for the book. Uh, Can't wait to get deeper into it. Even though my questions may have implied, I only got like through the title on the front cover. But Thank you. This is great. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you both. This has been fun. Thank you. Thanks again to Gene and Steve. Look for links in the show notes, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 493. Uh, if you have uh, questions for them for a future episode, you can email me, mark at leanblog.org. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.